And when we started this series, we noticed that together, First and Second Kings are one book, covering a period of approximately 400 years in Israel's history. And we noticed too, the writer of One and Two Kings is not trying to give us an exhaustive history of that period. We know he was working from very detailed historical records. We know that because he constantly refers to them. The annals of the kings of Israel and the annals of the kings of Judah. So the complete records were there. And the writer of Kings is not trying to reproduce them in their entirety. He is selecting from them. His aim, therefore, is not just to give us a history textbook. He wants to highlight certain bits of Israel's history. And he does that to teach us about wisdom and foolishness. To teach us about God's character and God's plans. So this is accurate history. The writer is careful with his names, his dates, and the places that he mentions. But this book was written to people in exile, looking back at their history. Looking back so they could learn from the wisdom and the foolishness of their ancestors. So that these people reading the book themselves could have a right relationship with the living God. Those are all things we've noticed before. But I mention them again here because they will help us with our passage this morning. We're going to look together at three chapters from 2 Kings, chapters 14 through to 16. And if you're using one of the Green Church Bibles, that's page 383, or in the large print 590. And just before we read parts of this, let me put this in context. In chapter 17, which we'll look at next time, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to disappear. The people are going to be taken into exile. The southern kingdom, Judah, will survive for a few more chapters in the book. Then it's going to go as well. So chapters 14 to 16 are the build-up to that. These chapters are setting the scene for Israel to disappear off a cliff in chapter 17. And the scene that is presented to us is a scene of chaos. It's an avalanche of chaos. One writer calls it a race to ruin. And the writer of Kings shows us that by racing through 11 kings in three chapters. They go like dominoes falling over. There's hardly time to notice one before the next one has arrived. Now in terms of time... Some of the kings in these chapters actually have quite long reigns. But in the text, they all go past in a blur. And that is not because nothing significant happened in those reigns. Many of the kings could easily have warranted a whole chapter all to themselves. In fact, the book of Second Chronicles gives some of them whole chapters all to themselves but not here in 2 Kings. Most of them go by with just a comment or two, then the standard summary, so-and-so reigned for this many years, he either did evil or he did right, then he rested with his ancestors. 
And you can read more about him in the library, in the annals of the kings. Then the text goes on to the next ruler. So in these chapters, we get an avalanche of kings coming at us. Many of them are assassinated. Some of them were good, some of them were bad. Some from the north, some from the south. And the overall effect, if we were to read straight through these three chapters, the overall effect is to convey the chaos of a people who are racing towards ruin. But in these three chapters, the writer does something else as well. The chaos is mainly conveyed by the middle section, chapter 15. That's where most of the kings just blur past. But at the beginning and at the end, the writer slows right down. And he shows us two causes of this chaos. So altogether, chapters 14 and 16, 14 to 16, show us chaos and how to achieve it. In these chapters, we're shown not just the chaos itself, but some of the causes of that chaos. And as God's people today, these are here not as examples for us to imitate. These are pitfalls for us to avoid. These are mistakes we are to steer clear of in our own situation. So we're going to read the first part of chapter 14 and then all of chapter 16. And on our way past, we'll just notice briefly the avalanche that comes in the middle. In chapter 15. So chapter 14, verse 1. In the second year of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoadan. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. In everything, he followed the example of his father Joash. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. After the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. Yet he did not put the children of the assassins to death in accordance with what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. He was the one who defeated 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and captured Selah in battle, calling it Jokthiel, the name it has to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, with the challenge, Come, let us face each other in battle. But Jehoash, king of Israel, replied to Amaziah, king of Judah, A thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. Then a wild beast in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. You have indeed defeated Edom, and now you are arrogant. Glory in your victory, but stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah also? 
Amaziah, however, would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, attacked. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. Judah was routed by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. Then Jehoash went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, a section of about 400 cubits long. He took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. He also took hostages and returned to Samaria. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, what he did and his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. As for the other events of Amaziah's reign, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? They conspired against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent men after him to Lachish and killed him there. He was brought back by horse and was buried in Jerusalem with his ancestors in the city of David. Then all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. Then if you'll just look over the page at the next section, we're just going to notice as we pass the names of the kings printed in bold. We have Jeroboam II, king of Israel, Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, king of Israel, Shalom, king of Israel, Menahem, king of Israel, Pekahiah, king of Israel, Pekah, king of Israel, Jotham, king of Judah. And we'll carry on reading from chapter 16, verse 1, at Ahaz, king of Judah. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for sixteen years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz. But they could not overpower him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram by driving out the people of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elath and have lived there to this day. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold from the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. 
He deported its inhabitants to Kir and put Rezin to death. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offering and grain offering, poured out his drink offering and splashed the blood of his fellowship offerings against the altar. The bronze altar that stood before the Lord, he brought from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large new altar, offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering and his grain offering, and the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering. Splash against this altar the blood of all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. But I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. And Uriah the priest did just as King Ahaz had ordered. King Ahaz cut off the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands. He removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entrance outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. As for all the other events of the reign of Ahaz and what he did, Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. This is God's word. Chaos and how to achieve it. Chapter 14 shows us one way to achieve it. Allow success to make you arrogant. This is a time of chaos. But not all of it comes from defeats. Some of this chaos comes from success. Chapter 14 opens in the southern kingdom of Judah. The king is Amaziah, son of Joash. Verse 3 tells us he did right in the eyes of the Lord. And we see that in the way he goes about ruling. Amaziah's father had been assassinated. And verse 5 says, After the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, he executed the officials who had murdered his father the king. Yet he did not put the children of the assassins to death in accordance with what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each one will die for their own sin. Amaziah starts out with a scrupulous concern to obey the Lord. The quotation in verse 6 is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. And in that book, each king was commanded to copy out the law by hand at the start of his reign, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of God's law. 
We find those instructions for kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17. It seems that Amaziah has done that. He pays attention to God's law. And as a result, he doesn't do what so many other kings have done. He doesn't wipe out the entire family of his father's murderers. Just the man who actually did the deed. And as he seeks to rule according to God's law, Amaziah is blessed with success. Look down at verse 7. He was the one who defeated 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and captured Selah in battle, calling it Jokthiel, the name it has to this day. Edom was a long-term enemy to the south of Judah. Now, it wasn't exactly a major superpower, and this doesn't sound like a hugely significant victory overall, but it is a success. And it proves to be a success that Amaziah cannot handle. J.R.R. Tolkien, who's famous as the author of The Lord of the Rings, he said this, Reward on earth is more dangerous for man than punishment. I'm sure he'd include women in that too if he was writing it today. Reward on earth is more dangerous for man than punishment. Why? Because success and achievement can so easily derail us. That's why. They can go to our heads. And that can lead to all sorts of stupid and destructive behavior. Just ask a long list of sports stars and music stars whether reward on earth is more dangerous than punishment. Try starting with George Best and Elvis and then just work your way forward. Success can ruin people. In Amaziah's case, a pretty modest success against Edom causes him to overreach in a disastrous way. Look again at verse 8. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, with the challenge, Come, let us face each other in battle. But Jehoash, king of Israel, replied to Amaziah, king of Judah, A thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon. Give your daughter to my son in marriage. Then a wild beast in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. You have indeed defeated Edom. And now you are arrogant. Glory in your victory, but stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah also? Amaziah, however, would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, attacked. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. Judah was routed by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Azariah, at Beth Shemesh. Then Jehoash went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, a section about 400 cubits long. He took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. He also took hostages and returned to Samaria. 
Amaziah, with a little bit of success under his belt, sets his sight on a much bigger target. His much stronger brothers to the north. And they are his brothers. Israel might be divided into two kingdoms at this point, but the north and the south are both descendants of Abraham. They all belong to that one nation that was delivered from slavery in Egypt and given this land as a gift from God. Amaziah seems to want to reunite the two kingdoms by force so he can be king of it all. Jehoash tries to calm him down. Or at least that's what Jehoash claims he's trying to do. But I think we could argue his approach isn't really calculated to be diplomatic. He tells this little story about a puny thistle making demands of a big cedar tree and then getting squashed by a wild beast who's walking by. Jehoash is comparing Amaziah to the little thistle. And he's comparing himself to the big cedar and the powerful wild beast. So this story is not likely to smooth things over with Amaziah. And Jehoash must have known that. But he is right in verse 10 when he tells Amaziah that his modest success has made him arrogant. Arrogant enough to act stupidly and ruin himself and his people. And that's what happens. Because Amaziah doesn't stay at home when he goes north to attack Israel, they end up coming down. He gets captured along with other Judeans. And the city of Jerusalem and Judah gets a battering. This is a whole new level of chaos. Previously, the two kingdoms have suffered at the hands of other nations. They've occasionally even formed an alliance to fight off other nations. But this is the first time they've turned on each other. This is a new low. And the rest of this section seems to suggest that Amaziah never regains the kingship in Judah. He lives on, but not as the king. Jehoash seems to be in charge of Israel and Judah for the next few years. And it seems to be the resentment over that which causes the Judeans to assassinate Amaziah and put his son on the throne. Up to this point, Israel and Judah have existed side by side, relatively peacefully. But now we've had civil war. And chapter 16 will show us the new aggression between the north and the south carries on in the years that follow. So according to chapter 14, how do you achieve chaos? You allow success to make you arrogant. You let blessing go to your head and lead you into stupid, prideful decisions. And we can apply this to lots of different situations. But the text in front of us is dealing particularly with God's people. So let's apply this to God's people today, the church. There are not many things that are more ugly 
than seeing a fellowship of God's people self-destruct. And very often that happens in the context of blessing and success. Things go well. Church leaders and church members fail to guard against pride. They get puffed up. They get carried away with their success. And before long, they're attacking one another and the whole church suffers. I can think of one thriving church where I grew up. At least it used to be a thriving church. But in recent years, silly squabbles and personal pride have caused that fellowship to split into two congregations. Which would have been bad enough. But what made it worse was that neither congregation would give up the building. And so at one point there were two groups trying to use the same building at the same time. And one of the preachers was using a bullhorn to drown out the other one. Now that would be funny if it wasn't so desperately, desperately sad. If it didn't make a laughing stock of the church of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're thinking, well, that was Northern Ireland. We're much more civilized over here. And maybe that's true. But isn't it also true that some of you who are here this morning used to belong to churches only a few miles from here? Churches that used to be thriving. But success led to arrogance. Arrogance led to stupid decisions. And where are those churches now? The fact is, no church is above falling into chaos. All it takes is for us to forget who the church belongs to. Then we start thinking that the church is a place for us to get our own way. It's a place to build our own reputation and our own little kingdom. And before we know it, we have civil war going on in the church. Each one of us has a responsibility to guard our own heart against pride, against personal ambition. That is my responsibility and your responsibility for God's sake. For the sake of his honor and his kingdom. So let's ask him to preserve us from arrogance, both individually and as a body. Amaziah didn't do that. Now he's gone. And the rest of chapter 14 and chapter 15 give us the full avalanche effect. We saw that as we glanced over it earlier. And these two next pages in our Bibles 
the writer of Kings hits the ancient equivalent of the fast forward button. And these pages, assassinations, bloody battles, and foreign invaders all blur together. Eight kings of Israel and Judah just flash past. It's almost impossible to keep it all straight. And that is the point. It's meant to convey the chaos of Israel and Judah. But when we get to chapter 16, the fast forward stops. And we're shown a second way to achieve chaos. Become embarrassed by uniqueness. In chapter 16, we're down in Judah again. The king this time is called Ahaz. And we're given a little introduction to him in chapter 16, verse 3. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. We've seen earlier in Kings how idolatry was introduced in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam, he kicked it all off with his two golden calves. Then later Ahab and Jezebel brought in Baal worship. And Ahaz is not the first southern king to bring that idolatry down into Judah. But notice here, he goes further than that. He doesn't just imitate Israel's sin in the north. He reaches back further and he resurrects the sins of the Canaanites, the people who'd lived there before Israel conquered the land. One of the reasons God had driven the Canaanites out was because they practiced human sacrifice. And Ahaz reintroduces that. Why? What's driving it? What's his motivation? Well, that comes to light in the rest of the chapter. Verse 5 tells us, Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz. This is a bit of a surprise. Because up to this point... Aram has been Israel's biggest enemy. But now Aram and Israel are enemies, are allies together against Judah. Why are these alliances flipped around? Well, no doubt part of this is a hangover from Amaziah in chapter 14. He started a civil war with the north. And that explains why Israel might come and attack Judah. But why have Israel and Aram become friends? After decades of Aram trying to wipe Israel out. Well, the answer is there is a new enemy on the scene. A genuine world superpower. It's the Assyrians. If we look on the map, much wider map than the one we've been looking at recently, Here's Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom, quite small on the map. Here's Aram to their northeast. 
And the Assyrians come from here. The Assyrians are now casting a big, scary shadow over the whole of the Middle East. And that explains why Israel and Aram have suddenly become friends. It's the principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend. We're both scared of the Assyrians, so let's start working together. But down in Judah, Ahaz takes a different approach to Assyria. Verse 7. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal, literally your servant and your son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Now, there's a very obvious problem with Ahaz's approach here. He's supposed to be the Lord's servant. And he's supposed to look to the Lord for salvation. But as one commentator says, Ahaz wants to accept the Assyrians as his personal savior. I think we can see the problem with that. It's pretty obvious. But that is not the real focus of this chapter. What the writer of Kings is really interested in here is what happens next. We're told Ahaz sends money to Tiglath-Pileser, and in response, Tiglath comes and he bashes up the Aramean capital, Damascus, as well as killing the king of Aram. That well and truly distracts attention from Judah. So Tiglath has done what Ahaz asked and paid him to do. But then look at verse 10. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. Verse 11. So... Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz arrived. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offering and grain offering, poured out his drink offering and splashed the blood of his fellowship offerings against the altar. The bronze altar that stood before the Lord, he brought from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Spahaz has a new altar built, and to make space for that new altar, he has the old altar shoved out of the way. Well, so what? Why has that even been recorded for us? Why fast forward through years and years of other stuff to tell us about this? Well, to grasp the significance of this, let's go back for a minute to Abraham. Or in fact, let's go back to God's promise to Abraham. God said, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation, and I will bless you. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham's descendants were to be unique in the world. 
They were to be the channel through which God would bless the world. And many years later, after God brought Abraham's descendants out of their slavery in Egypt, God renewed that statement. He said to them, out of all nations, you are to be my treasured possession." He said, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A priest represents God to the people. And God is saying that Israel as a nation is to represent God to the whole world. In that sense, Israel was to be unique in the world. And so God gave detailed instructions for Israel's place of worship. In the book of Exodus, God said to Moses, Make sure you build that place of worship according to the pattern I show you. And those instructions for the tabernacle are laid out in precise, painful detail in Exodus. And they were later used for the temple in Jerusalem when it was built. There was absolutely no question that the Israelites were to make up their own plan. They were to follow God's. And the reason was God was going to live among them in the tabernacle and the temple. There was no other place on earth where God did that. He didn't live among any other people. So from the very beginning... God's people were to be unique in the world. Uniqueness, in fact, was central to their whole existence. They were not the same as the other nations. And the reason they were to be different was to bring blessing to the nations. There would be no help to anyone if they just did what everyone else was doing. And that background then helps us see the significance of what Ahaz is doing here. He goes up to see his new pal, Tiglath-Pileser. When he's there in Damascus, he sees lots of new things. He hears lots of new ideas. Ahaz's mind begins to broaden. At least that's what he would have called it. And he starts to feel a little embarrassed about how they do things back home in Judah. It seems a bit backward. A bit behind the times. And actually, it seems a bit pompous. The idea that God only made himself present in the temple in Jerusalem. The idea that God was only satisfied with the plan of the temple given to Moses. Isn't that a bit exclusive? Doesn't that imply that the other nations are wrong in the way they approach God? So Ahaz decides it's really time to broaden things a bit. He sends home a new set of plans for a new altar. And then when he gets home... We're told he actually goes about much more extensive remodeling. That's described in verses 17 and 18. He removes quite a few items from the temple. He removes the panels 
that were carved with cherubim. Those were angelic beings, and they were symbolically guarding the unique dwelling place of God. But Ahaz doesn't want to send that kind of message anymore. He wants to tear away the uniqueness. And there's no suggestion here any of this was commanded by his new friend Tiglath-Pileser. What verse 18 does tell us is that Ahaz acted in deference to the king of Assyria. He hasn't been told to do this. He wants to do it so that he can fit in with his new friends. He wants to do it so that it doesn't seem like Abraham's descendants are claiming to have a unique relationship with God. And all of this helps us understand the summary statement we were given back in verse 3. That Ahaz reached back to revive the religion of the Canaanites. It's all part of Ahaz's embarrassment at Israel's uniqueness. Let's not suggest the Canaanites were wrong in the way they approached God. And let's not suggest the Assyrians or the Arameans are wrong in the way they approach God. Isn't there room for all approaches here at the temple in Jerusalem? One way for God's people to achieve chaos is to become embarrassed by their uniqueness. Once that happens, God's people are no use to anyone. We become just irrelevant. There is no point to our existence anymore. God has made his people different on purpose. So we can be a source of blessing to the world. We have good news people cannot find anywhere else in the world. The church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament says, has the keys to the kingdom of God. That means we are authorized to tell the world our Savior Jesus Christ is the only way men and women can be forgiven and accepted by God. We're also called to show the world what our God is like. We do that by living in accordance with his written word. So that we can begin to give just a little glimpse of God's character through the way we live our lives. We're supposed to be different. And when we're different, yes, people will get offended. They'll think we're stuck up ourselves. Other people will think we're ridiculously and pathetically out of step with the times. When it comes to family life and relationships, when it comes to wealth and possessions and how we use those things, how much value we place on those things. And as you and I notice other people's scorn or if we notice the offense they take at us, 
It's so easy to get embarrassed and just want to blend in. Ahaz did it by shoving the old altar out of the way. Let's get rid of that. We can do it today by beginning to treat the church like it's a business. Or by beginning to treat worship like it's entertainment. We can do it in a whole lot of other ways. Ditching the Bible's teaching on what's good sex and what's destructive sex. Or deciding that wrath and hell are topics we should forget about. In fact, when we are determined to blend in, we can end up sidelining the Bible altogether. But once we start dropping the uniqueness of the Christian message and the uniqueness of the Christian life, we are damning the world around us. A church that blends in is no use to anyone. And neither are Christians who blend in. We're abandoning the world to chaos when we do that. Why? Because as Christians, we know the only way out of chaos. So if we love the world around us, we must be willing to be different. We must not be ashamed of being different. It's the only way we can be a channel of God's blessing to the world. Why would anyone pay attention to us if we're just taking our ideas and our values from the society around us and then offering those ideas and values back to the society around us? The early church did not take that approach. Now, we live today in what's called a pluralistic society, meaning there are many religions, there are many places of worship, there are many ideas about how to live and how to find our purpose in life. Well, the church began in an equally pluralistic society. The Romans were in charge, and when the Romans conquered nations... They didn't get rid of the gods of those nations. They just incorporated them into a bigger and bigger menu of gods for people to choose from. The Romans accepted all religions, but they could not stand the Christians. Why? Because Christianity said there's only one God. And the only way to God is through Jesus. The Christians didn't say that because they felt superior. They weren't being arrogant. They said it because they loved the nations and wanted the nations to be saved. And so the early church didn't shrink back from their uniqueness. They made it their main emphasis. And of course they suffered for that. But in the midst of that suffering, the church thrived and it grew. 
The book of Acts describes that. And the reason the church thrived and grew was because it was different. People realized here was a message and here was a hope they could not find anywhere else. If those early Christians had just toned it all down, they would have been swallowed up by their pluralistic society. They would have vanished without trace. And so would the hope of eternal life. The church survived because it dared to be different. So let's not be embarrassed by our uniqueness. Let's celebrate and proclaim it. And if that brings fruit, if success in some way comes from that, let's refuse to give in to arrogance and pride. Let's boast in the Lord and His life-changing power. And in a few moments, we have a perfect opportunity to do that. As we gather round the Lord's table, there's no better way to be humbled than to eat this meal and remember what our sin has done. It brought a loving Savior to the cross so we could be forgiven. There's no other way. How could we have pride in our hearts when we remember that? And this meal also reminds us we have been entrusted with a unique mission in the world. We have a message of life for a dying world. We might look insignificant, and that's probably how we feel, but we have priceless news to share. Jesus' broken body and shed blood have opened the way to heaven. He is the hope of the world. And so before we eat and drink, we're going to take the opportunity together to respond and to praise God that because of Jesus, we are a unique people. We have a unique treasure to offer the world. Let's stand And remind each other what that means. We have this treasure from the Lord our God.